the war, the military intervention, it's not the right way to defeat Al-Qaeda or any armed group in Yemen. And to just to continue doing it while the state is collapsed in Yemen, it means nothing. Hello and welcome to Displaced. I'm Ravi Gormethy. And I'm Greg Gordon, and we are your co-host on Displaced. Displaced is a partnership between the International Rescue Committee, where Ravi and I work, and Vox Media. Today on Displaced, we have Radia Amutawakil. She is the chairperson and co-founder of the Muatana Organization for Human Rights. Radia is an amazing figure. She was the first person to brief the UN Security Council on the humanitarian crisis in Yemen. And she's been leading an organization that documents human rights violations all over Yemen by all parties of the conflict. She calls it building a human rights memory. And what's so critical about that is documentation, because it provides the structure for demanding accountability. In this episode, we take all of the conversations that we've been having at a 30,000 feet level and actually bring it to what's happening on the ground. Let's get to it. Radia, thank you so much for joining us on Displaced. Um, you're actually joining us from The Hague, is that right? Yes, I'm in The Hague currently. But you live in exile in, in New York? Yes. What are you doing at The Hague at the moment? Uh, we are actually out of Yemen since five months in an advocacy trip in Europe, also in the United States, uh, to advocate, I mean, uh, basically against the violations uh, in Yemen from all parties to the conflict and to push towards uh, peace and accountability. I mean, do you mind just giving us a bit of a background into your own organisation and your own uh, history? Because you, uh, it's an incredible organisation that you founded and you've been on a really fascinating journey. Yeah, thank you. So, Muatana, we are a team of uh, 70 people, or men and women. One of the main things that Muatana is doing is documenting the violations. Uh, we follow an investigative uh, methodology to document violations in the ground by all parties to the conflict. And then we issue statements, reports, and documentary films. So we consider the information as a power and first step towards any advocacy or accountability in the future. Uh, We are trying to do like a human rights memory. We also do, um, we have a legal unit which do uh, legal support for the cases of detention and forced disappearance in seven governorates. And for the documentation, we cover 20 governorates in Yemen, 20 over uh, 22. Besides the advocacy, what we were doing, and also awareness and training regarding human rights issues. That's that's really helpful. And we're going to uh, dive into um, the organization and how it actually collects that information, the type of advocacy work you do. Um, yeah. But before we before we get there, how did you get involved in this? Well, I started to work in human rights since 2004. Uh, there was a, a war in Yemen, in north of Yemen. So I started to write in newspaper against the war. So the families of uh, those who were detained uh, because of the war, they came to me and asked me to engage with them, to help them to release their uh, relatives. So I engaged with them in many activities and I got stuck since then in human rights work. So in 2007, I met uh, my colleague uh, Abdul Rashid, who is both of us are the co-founders of Muatana. Uh, and then we started to do Muatana since then. And we have learned a lot from international NGOs like Human Rights Watch, Amnesty, Open Society, and later many international NGOs. 
And w- when you said that you document human rights abuses, can you just say a little bit about what range of things that might cover? And also how you just go about capturing that information and, and, and learning about those abuses? Yeah, you know, uh, in a case of war, uh, many types of uh, um, uh, violations are committed by all parties to the conflict in the ground. And every time there is a new violation, so we have the airstrikes, we have uh, the indiscriminate chilling, landmines, detention, torture, enforced disappearance, a blockade. So we we develop forms uh, and to document each violation. And when, when we say that we document this Incidents. It means that we have visited the site in the ground, and we also uh, have meetings and interviews with eyewitnesses, families of victims, survivors, uh, and we also take uh, when if it is an airstrike, we take uh, photos for their minutes of weapons, and we also try to study the the place where there is a military target or not, or to get all the information uh, regarding the incident. Uh, and we do it through our field researchers, and then we revise it, and then we do a lot of, uh, uh, with experts, we do the legal assessment and then publish it. And, and since you've been doing this work, what kind of patterns are you seeing? Are you seeing particular trends emerge in terms of the deterioration in, in the situation? Yeah. One of the main uh, violations in this period is the the airstrikes by the Saudi and Emirati coalition. We documented until now more than 200 incidents where thousands of civilians were killed and injured, and everything uh, has been striked in Yemen. Uh, schools, hospitals, funerals, homes, uh, bridges, factories, everything. This is one main uh, type of violations, but there is also the indiscriminate shilling by the Houthi armed group and some in the cities, uh, which also have killed and injured hundreds of people. And also there's a very heavy file of uh, detention, enforced disappearance and torture by all parties to the conflict in Yemen. Also landmines by Houthis. And there is the blockade, which has different uh, levels. One of it is by the Saudi and Emirati coalition and the Hadi government, which has a huge impact in the civilians in Yemen. But also there are other kinds in the ground blockade by Houthi armed groups and other armed groups that is uh, loyal to Hadi government and the coalition. So it's this is only some of them. There are in, in Yemen, there are a lot of violations. What we call it like unnecessary violations because it's very preventable, but because all parties of the conflict, they don't care. They don't feel that they will be held accountable. Uh, so they just do it easily. I think one of the really interesting things about your organization's work is that you profile the violations of all of the actors, um, as opposed to, you know, just the Houthis or, um, you know, Saudi, um, supported groups or, one of one of those pieces, and I think the one of the reasons that that can be challenging is just for uh, issues of access, because certain groups control certain territories, and uh, without that access, you can end up kind of generating the biases of the selective reporting that um, I think your organization has really circumvented, in large part. How have you managed to uh, gain and retain access in a lot of these areas? So we have field researchers. So our field researchers are from their own areas. For example, our field researchers in Taiz are from Taiz in Aden, from Aden in Sanaa. They are from Aden, so they they can move and they have this. They can manage how to to develop their network and to get the information because we are a Yemeni NGO with a Yemeni team. Uh, so we could challenge the access issue. Yeah, absolutely. Can I? Say- 
I'm really curious about one of the challenges, I think, about uh, how you identify people who are doing the reporting that you see in human rights reporting in, in conflicts all over the world, which is when you're oftentimes recruiting local field workers, um, you have to make sure that they're kind of doing um, kind of accurate and precise work. And one of the challenges to that is that there's oftentimes local incentives to amplify violations that are caused by other groups, um, either um, uh, intentionally or unintentionally. And it the human rights reporting can really kind of get woven into the local social politics of the violence in ways that are less accurate. And so I'd love to hear how you take on and, and think about that problem as you operationalize human rights reporting. Yeah, it's one of the things that makes civil society weak in general in Yemen is this. It's uh, it's not independent. It's, they cover, but I mean, violations by some parties and not the others. And this is just affect badly the strength of civil society in Yemen. For us, uh, all our team are, uh, are fresh. They are young people. So we sacrifice at the beginning the experience, but we just made sure that we are choosing people who are neutral, independent, and then we train them. We have been training them for many years. Uh, this will just make us uh, move slowly in our uh, products, but at least we are sure that uh, the information is right. And there is a system. Uh, so we have the field researchers, we have those researchers in the center who are reviewing the information daily. So it's it's a big challenge, but there are many great Yemeni people uh, that can be trained and do a lot of work, like just Muatana's team, and they are very brave, and it's a lot of challenges that they are facing in the ground. And instead of this, they are still documenting the violations by all parties to the conflict, in spite of the hate campaigns that's happening uh, against Muatana and affecting them, even socially. But they are still working, I believe, what the, in, on what they are doing in the ground. And is that a, a just a sort of pick up on Grant's point? Do you actually find routinely conflicting reports uh, that you have to weed through and counteract? And, and how do you do that? Is that through um, getting multiple sources? Um, can you just perhaps amplify that point? Yes, we only publish or uh, the the verified information. In our cases, we never uh, say that we are pre- presenting totals. I don't know what is the total of injured or killed or uh, detained people, but I know that this type of violation is happening. I do- and I document many cases of this, many cases, hundreds of cases of uh, airstrikes, of detention. And so I talk about the things that we have documented and we're sure about it. Mm-hmm. We don't give, um, I mean, a total numbers. And one of the issues that was very difficult for us to document, and it is one of the the worst, I mean, uh, I forgot to say it, the worst uh, violations that are happening in Yemen now is the starvation. We keep mm. saying that Yemenis are not starving. They are being starved because parties to the conflict are using uh, starvation as a, a tool of war. But it was very difficult for us to document it. It needs new tools and need a new kind of information to have a, a violator, a victim, and a violation. So we see it. It's there. We feel it every day. And it's the worst that happening to Yemenis but still documented it like a human rights violation is a very big challenge. When you say you would need new tools to document uh, starvation as a tool of war, can you just, just expand upon that? Uh, when we document, we have to know who is the victim and who is the violator and what is the very direct link between both of them. Uh, with this starvation, it's many factors, yeah? Mm-hmm. So I can't say that this person uh, died because of starvation. It's not direct, you know? 
So because also Yemen is poor before the war, so you have to know what exactly led to this. So it's not impossible. Mm -hmm. It's very possible, but it's still a new area for us. And we are working in this with uh, uh, legal groups, with our partners in different uh, countries to, to have the tools to document violations. So we'd like to go into one or two areas in a bit more detail. Before we do, I just want to um, ask you personally, what kind of impact has this work had for you? Can you just say a little bit about the the, the, the personal experience? Yeah, I, I actually, I live in Yemen. So for a Yemeni person, we are in a war, yeah? So there is nothing worse than a war. So all, part, all people are very affected by the war. Our work is very difficult, and you can imagine uh, to be a human rights, independent human rights NGO in the middle of armed groups and your neighbor is Saudi Arabia. So we use, uh, we receive a lot of threats. We have been detained. Uh, there's a lot of hate campaigns against us. But in spite of all of this, if we are not doing this, then our situation is going to be even worse, even in, in the personal level. I feel that we are lucky that we can do this work uh, to have, to feel that we are doing role in the very horrible situation in Yemen that affects every, everyone in Yemen, every, every family. It's, it's very good that we have this tool to make the situation at least less miserable for civilians. It's in an interview that I was reading that you did um, a few months earlier, you said the work of a field researcher is always painful. We are so close, but it feels like we don't have a lot to give them directly. Human rights work is a very long process. It's not like humanitarian work where you just give somebody something. Here you go. Here's medicine. Here's food. Um, and Ravi and I are on the humanitarian side where we get the pleasure and the opportunity to, to often do that. Um, I'm wondering if you can reflect on what you see as the long process for your organization and in Yemen and the human rights work there? Yeah, there's, there should be a very uh, direct uh, influence, which is to stop the violations, even to protect civilians. But in the long term, there should be accountability. And now we are in Wadana, are uh, studying all the international mechanisms of accountability to say what's uh, uh, what's possible, what even can be created. So, uh, as I told you, all parties of the conflict that are doing the violations because they feel they have the green light. So it's we don't want to be an NGO, NGO who only uh, uh, say information and comment on it, and also do advocacy. We want to go to the legal steps that can help those. Uh, violators accountable one day, if not now, in the future. So that's why we are working very hard to do a human rights memory. So this can be lo- can, cannot be lost. One of, one of the I think major reasons for human rights reporting not is not only to just kind of have a documentation, but as you're saying, generate accountability, and then hopefully when there's more kind of human rights naming and shaming and documentation people change their behavior. They change the way that they act in conflict. They don't engage in these violations. Um, I think that's one of the long-term goals and objectives of, of the human rights enterprise. And I would love to hear whether in the reporting that your field researchers have done or your organization or you have personally seen, have you seen any individuals or groups change their behavior as a result of this? Yeah, we know that because of the work of Muadana is doing and other human rights, international human rights NGOs in Yemen, that many violations were, uh, uh, people were 
protected from them. And we managed in Muatana to release uh, many detainees and to contact uh, many of those who forcibly disappeared with their families. And we have participated uh, in the shaming and aiming that you have mentioned and parties to the conflict that, that was done by the UN. We were the base of information in this. And also we pushed with other with our colleagues and other international NGOs to have this international mechanisms of investigation in Yemen, what is called the GE, Group of Eminent of Experts. But still I'm not satisfied with all of this because the situation in Yemen is still very bad. I want to say the impact in the ground. I want people uh, to have a normal life and to be protected uh, from violations by state, by law, not by chance and accident. Uh, so that's why it's a very long process. The advocacy is, yeah, we 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 feel from our work uh, that advocacy just do a lot of influence, but it's not enough. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back soon with Radia Almatawakil. And we're back with Radia. So in this podcast series, we're trying to focus a little bit about the, the future of war. And one aspect of that is the increasing use of, of drones, uh, not just from US perspective to tackle uh, tackle terrorism, but even actually on the ground. And you've seen that in Yemen with uh, even the Houthis using some form of rudimentary drone as well. You've clearly been involved, I assume, in, in documenting uh, drone strikes and, and, and the violations there. And we'd love to talk to you a bit more about that. The first dimension I think it'd be quite interesting to dig into actually picks up on the points that we were discussing before about misinformation. Because obviously, when uh, when people talk about drones, they, they often just depict them as being precise killing machines that allow you to uh, reduce the amount of civilian damage because they are uh, more more precise than traditional forms of warfare. That's the sort of sales pitch. But often this is only as good as the actual human intelligence that you have. And as Grant was saying before, um, there's lots of incentives on the various perpetrators of, of war to try to use that situation to try and get, settle local scores. So I'm interested in whether that's something that's come through in your reporting uh, of drone strikes, the actual manipulation of information and inaccuracy. Yes, so drones is one of the violations that we are we are documenting in Muatana, not only now, but even uh, uh, since 2013 and 14. And we have published with Open Society Foundation a report that calls death by, by drones. Uh, we are still continuing as Muatana uh, to document these cases, which has uh, increased uh, lately in 2017 and 2018, and which is uh, still, it's still uh, it's like it, the drones. It's a target that is not known. The military purpose is not known. And also what is the only clear when it comes to drones, it's that we have civilian victims. But what have been achieved, why the incident was there, what is the plan, it's not clear. And Al-Qaeda in Yemen before the war, before 2014, were in the mountain. They were not among people. Now Al-Qaeda in Yemen are stronger and stronger, not because of the drones, it's many factors, but it just indicates that the war, the military intervention, it's not the right way to defeat Al-Qaeda or any armed group uh, in Yemen. And this is a very failed way to do it. And to just to continue doing it while the state is collapsed in Yemen, it means nothing. And now it's not only drones. We have raids. 
they used to use drones. It didn't work. And now they are doing raids, which many civilians uh, are killed and injured. And still not even, uh, it's not uh, something that we do, we understand. And even people in the ground, they don't understand what are these raids for and what were the result of it. But that gets to the other kind of impact that drones have. It's not just the, the killing and the maiming of civilians that may occur due to misinformation. It's actually the impact on communities and the fear that is created by drone strikes and the sense that you can't then trust your neighbours because they may be feeding information to people who may uh, then result in, in drone strikes being taken out taken out on you. So can you say a little bit more about the the impact from a community perspective living under the fear of random strikes by drones? The problem that the list of demanded people is not uh, uh, is not published, so people they don't know who are those people who uh, who are targeted. Uh, they might be neighbors, they might be uh, people in a car, they just uh, uh, joined. So many civilians were killed because they are close for from people they didn't know that they are demanded. So uh, in the areas where there was. Uh, a drone strikes or a drone incidents, uh, people will just, they live in fear. They didn't use to feel this fear before 2012 because they thought in a moment that the drones will only target uh, fighters or Al-Qaeda. But within days, they knew that whenever they hear the, the plane hovering over their head, that they might be the target because it, it is not a clever uh, weapon as they used to think. One of the issues with um, drone strikes is accountability when civilians are killed and the lack of it. So uh, typically with the US drone strikes, if they're operated out of the CIA, they cannot actually uh, admit responsibility. And that's partly why under the Obama administration, they tried to shift drone strikes towards uh, the DOD entirely. Now, when um, there are civilian deaths and no one actually accepts any responsibility, no one is held to account, what does that do to local communities in your experience? It's a lot of anger and it's not only responsibility. They don't even investigate. In many or most of the cases that we have documented, we were the only NGO or only NGOs who just reached those people. There is no investigation uh, from any side uh, officially, I mean. And they they have this anger that this uh, there is a country who just... A very developed country, they they uh, expect to receive a very developed te- technology regarding uh, education, regarding health uh, from these countries, but they are just uh, receiving the drones and weapons from those people. And it is very, I mean, ironic. Yeah. Under the Trump administration, we've actually seen a loosening of the rules of engagement on, on drone strikes. Um, there's been, I think, more of them and potentially them being targeted using metadata and patterns, which may not be, um, well, it's obviously going to have a higher civilian deaths. Have you seen that play out on the ground? Have you seen a change in the way in which drone strikes have occurred in the last uh, year or two? You know, in the ground, if you ask people the difference between uh, two presidents they wouldn't they would not know it's just the same under the administration of obama or under the administration of uh, trump there were many incidents where civilians were killed and injured and there is no investigation no compensation under both administrations but what is new with a trump administration as i told you is the raid uh, it's more than a drone where people go in the ground and there's uh, uh, clashes and more civilians were killed and injured in this. But as a strategy, it's just the same. 
One of the interesting things that's happened over the past, I think, few months that's kind of changed in international politics around support for the Yemeni war is the Saudi crown prince's ordainment of the killing of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. And that has, in a way, kind of opened up a space for the U.S. Congress to vote in a bill that's starting to rescind support for supplying the Saudi Air Force with bombs that are being used in Yemen. And it's starting to really kind of bring light to the conflict that's happening in Yemen. Yeah. How has that narrative been experienced on on the ground in Yemen? Because one of the, you know, kind of things that people have started talking about is how it's been kind of one individual who was an American citizen, who was a journalist that's kind of changed the arc of a war where, you know, an estimated 22 million people are on the brink of starvation. Tens of thousands have been killed. Um, and it feels kind of bizarrely asymmetric. Yes. So people in the beginning, they were talking about it with a lot of sour on this. So thousands of civilians in Yemen have been killed and injured and starving uh, and nothing happened internationally. And then um, the Khashoggi case is a very big crime. It's a unique crime, but still they, Yemenis, they think that they also deserve such attention. But we, they are now dealing with the fact that this murder just brought a lot of attention to, to Yemen uh, and helped to go forward uh, to peace. So maybe they, they maybe now they forgot uh, about this narrative uh, and they are thinking that just it was a chance to bring a lot of attention to Yemen. Whatever the reason is, they know that the war is not justice, but they wanted this pressure on all parties of the conflict in Yemen to go forward and to have some steps, which is urgent actions uh, to make the situation better in the ground. This is what, what is most uh, more important. Mm. And uh, I keep saying that if the Saudi Arabia was not given the green light to do these kinds of violations in Yemen, then maybe uh, the Khashoggi murder will never happen. Maybe Saudis, they felt very empowered and uh, they, mm. they have the immunity to do whatever they want because of the Yemen war. And also, if they didn't this violations in Yemen war, maybe the attention or the the pressure and the and the Saudi journalists uh, would not be that strong. So Yemen just made uh, uh, the war in Yemen and the violations by the Saudi coalition also made it very possible to put a lot of pressure in Mohammed bin Salman regarding the Khashoggi murder. So it's it's linked with each other. But the, the most important thing of all of this is the result. So if the pressure continue, then it's going to be a very real change in the region and in Yemen. But if the pressure was just like a fashion uh, and it just stopped here, then we will start from the scratch and all the violators will be stronger in face of civilians. It's going to be very dangerous. Now it's a very important moment and I hope it will go forward until we really see a shape of state in Yemen and a, and a kind of peace. Do you want to take us quickly back to... Um conversation on drones that we're having a second ago. I think you're starting to see not just drones that are operated by the US, but also by the Houthis and by the UAE. And I understand that Houthi drones are, you know, they're not medium distance. Um, They're probably more indiscriminate and more rudimentary. Is that something you've seen played out on the ground? And, And what kind of impact could that have in the future? Because if you lower the costs of of war even further, because you are giving uh, various different parties to the conflict access to this technology, could you just see um, the the war perpetuate even further? 
we have heard that the, the drones has been uh, uh, used by this particular conflict, but actually we we didn't see it in our documentation. We still didn't document things regarding to this. But I can tell you that the problem is not with the technology. The problem is with accountability. So whether Houthis have this technology or Saudis or even the U.S., so civilians are still killed and injured. Yeah, I mean, one, one of the things I find appalling about this is that the the, the language that is used around drones is often, um, I think, very dehumanizing. Uh, so you hear people talking about how we're just going to have to continually do drone strikes to address t- terrorism, like mowing the lawn. Um, and, and actually what's happening is you are, you know, you're producing a huge backlash in terms of fear and anger and resentment, and you're undermining the rule of law. So if you're talking about actually what will actually address the conflict, ultimately it's about the rule of law and and, and, and that playing out, and, and this continues to undermine it. You know, the environment of war is a very perfect environment for all fanatic armed groups. So the only thing that can defeat these armed groups is just to go to peace and rebuild the state and also, yeah, rebuild the judiciary system and uh, and the rule of law. Otherwise, uh, they will just be in the ground strengthening each other, all armed groups. Uh, so yes, it's only peace and rebuilding the state can defeat these armed groups in Yemen. And most of Yemenis are still civilians and they are not engaged in the war like fighters. They don't like to fight. In spite of all the situation, in spite uh, there is no source of income and the war can be a source of income, but still most of the Yemenis are not engaged in the war and they don't want to be part of this war like fighters. Uh, they are looking for peace and it, it is uh, it's a chance and all parties to the conflict in Yemen are weak and they can be pushed to go to the table. To push in this from a different direction, I think, though, um, maybe it's not about the new technologies at all that's like shifting this. Um, I think you can like take a step back and make the argument that one of the reasons that the conflict has been so awful in Yemen is actually just because of the international politics and um, essentially kind of uh, the recension of international norms. I think about the fact that a lot of the kind of major players who have been supporting the Saudi-led coalition are on the United Nations Security Council, and that that's really restricted um, the space for kind of any Security Council resolutions that could be meaningful. I'm, you know, I think back to in 2018, the Secretary General's annual list of shame of you know wartime violations only gently censored the Saudi-led coalition, and then actually even referred to the coalition as "quote the coalition to restore legitimacy in Yemen," and that's just plain political text. And so, I wonder if it's less about kind of the the technology of war and more about the way that international norms are evolving um, and uh, institutions, multilateral institutions, um, becoming you know more feckless. I think that's true, Grant, but I think that what's interesting about the way in which drones um, changes the strategic logic and behaviour of these states is that if a country like the US thinks it can basically achieve its objectives just through uh, mowing the lawn, as, as uh, some people would put it, in, uh, I've heard it put, through counter-terrorist operations using drones, then they will do so, even though that has very negative long-term consequences for, for those countries. And they don't really have an incentive to actually um, cooperate, focus on long-term uh, ways of addressing the issues through the rule of law. Uh, and, and they almost there's a get-out-of-jail-free card if they don't want to actually engage with other states and, and uh, in more long-term stabilisation. Ruddy, you were going to come in there. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, the technology make it uh, make it easier for them to do this, and uh, and make it also more horrible in the ground uh, regarding uh, the effect of it. But still, there are many weapons around the world, but are not used used in the uh, like in war, because there are rules uh, and there are principles, and they can't use it just the way they want to use it. So technology is a problem. Improving technology to kill people in different ways is a very huge problem. But also, it also it it affects the arms trade uh, idea and having money because of weapons, and this will just make uh, the idea of war fresh. But still, I believe in accountability more because the technology is already there. The weapons is already there. The only way that can uh, make all parties to the conflict not to use it in a way that harm civilians is accountability. So having been on just a five-month tour, um, you know, publicly advocating for people to understand Yemen and get engaged, what have you learned about kind of advocacy that's surprised you? I was really surprised that there is nothing impossible. Everything is possible. When we uh, went to do advocacy trip in to the U.S. and Europe in 2017, there were three impossible things in, on our face. It's impossible to um, delay the war in Al-Hudaydah. It's impossible to have an international mechanism for investigation. It's impossible to bring uh, Saudi Arabia back to the shameless. And three, the three impossible things happened in 2017. And now in 2018, many people were saying it's impossible to do any positive steps towards peace in Yemen um, because the Khashoggi case just uh, happened and this, there was a lot of attention in Yemen and the stage was set uh, from the work of human rights NGOs and humanitarian NGOs. Then this was very happening. What's happening now in Yemen is just like a miracle. The type of attention for parties of the conflict to go to Sweden, the, uh, the bill that was voted for in the the Congress. So this was uh, was impossible for many people, but it just mm. happened. So with advocacy, you can just uh, we I discovered uh, to what extent it's possible to change things. So Radio, you're coming to the end of your um, advocacy talk. Can you say a little bit more about the next steps for you and what you're trying to achieve in the next few months? We as Muatana, we have registered Muatana in Netherlands. Uh, we will have a small office in Netherlands to uh, to focus in advocacy and accountability. And we will go back to Yemen to continue our work and to have... Uh, to keep working in more effective mechanisms. And we will continue uh, to do that documentation and also uh, we'll have lawyers. We have lawyers in seven governorates. We'll have lawyers in 20 governorates to keep following uh, the cases. And one of the things that Muadana is trying to do is to, to have a new generation of human rights defenders. Uh, human rights work is new in Yemen uh, when it comes to the professional standards. So we want to, to build a new generation uh, for human human rights defenders to work whether with Muadana or in civil society in general. And this will protect uh, Yemenis uh, uh, in the future. And it even can be uh, an example for border, I mean, experience uh, even in the region, not only in Yemen. Radia, thank you so much for being with us today on Displaced. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that was Radia Al-Mutawakil, chairperson and co-founder of the Muatana Organization for Human Rights. 
you want to hear any more about the topics we discussed today on this episode, check out our show notes at www.rescue.org slash displaced. Next week, we're talking to Dr. Joanne Liu, the international president of Médecins Sans Frontières. One of the most alarming trends in war at the moment is the increasing targets of humanitarian workers. And MSF have been particularly affected by that in recent years. I'm going to be talking to her about that, but also many of the other issues we've picked up with Rob Malley and with the Bombshell crew about how technology is changing war and about the main hotspots that she's concerned about in 2019. That's next week on Displaced. We would love to hear from you. Drop us a line, email us at displaced at rescue.org or talk to us on Twitter. I'm Grant M. Gordon. And I'm Argor Murphy. And while you're on Twitter, send Displaced to a friend who you think would enjoy the show. Make sure you tell them to subscribe to Displaced on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. At Vox Media, Displaced is produced by Megan Cunane. Our engineer is Jelani Carter with extra help this week from Michael Franz. Golda Arthur is our senior producer. Golda, is she actually in the building today? I don't... I think she's... This is like a ghost producer. Yeah, well... Just a name. And Ashok Kura is the executive producer of audio. At the IRC, shout out to Anna Feuer, who is our researcher, and a special thanks to Alex Bandea, Natalie Sarkowski, and Ben Moskowitz. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>